Welcome to the Red Letter Christians podcast. Red Letter Christians gets our name from the Bibles that highlight the words of Jesus in red. And we're aspiring to live as if Jesus meant the stuff he said. We know that the loudest, most prominent voices representing Christianity in America haven't always been the most beautiful or the most faithful voices. And we know that the way we change the narrative is by changing the narrators. We are committed to amplifying the voices of people who are dedicated to Jesus and to justice. How much longer will justice when hey y'all, this is Shane Claiborne, and I am so glad you are listening in. I've been doing this podcast and this radio show uh, for a lot of years, and this year, over the last few months, I've been doing a series around uh, my newest book, Rethinking Life. But, you know, this book really was the culmination of a lot of um, passions and interests and concerns of mine. Um, I wrote my, my previous book on gun violence, beating guns, because Christians are the biggest supporters of guns in America and the biggest demographic of gun owners and gun enthusiasts in America. Find that a little troubling, uh, a lot of troubling, <laughs> more than a little bit. And I wrote, you know, before that, Executing Grace, which was about the death penalty, because um, Christians are the biggest supporters of the death penalty in uh, the United States and in, in many other countries in the world. And so this is a this this book, Rethinking Life, is about what it means to be pro-life, right? Not just to be pro-birth, not just to be pro-life on one issue of abortion, but to be an advocate for life from womb to tomb, from the cradle to the grave, from from conception to to, to natural death. And, um, you know, there are folks that have said uh, many uh, pro-life, pe many people that say they're pro-life would be more accurate to say that they're pro-birth or that they're anti-abortion uh, because they often act as if uh, life begins at conception and ends at birth uh, and, and on many other issues that are about life and death and the sacredness of every person. We haven't been the best champions of life. So um, if you haven't checked it out, um, grab a copy of Rethinking Life or Katie and I read it too in the, in the audio version. Um, but if you're just tuning in, uh, I'm also talking this week about Christopher Columbus and colonization. Because this is one of those places when you look historically and even now, we haven't celebrated native lives, indigenous people, First Nations folks, um, as equally made in the image of God as white folks, Europeans, colonizers. And so there's a need uh, that many people are talking about these days to decolonize the gospel. And that's what we're talking about. It's also not a coincidence uh, that this next week uh, in the United States is when many people remember Columbus Day, when Christopher Columbus um, came to these Americas. And um, that holiday has been celebrated, get this, for over 200 years, since 1792. And now around our country, there's a lot of folks that are rethinking that, that are... Um, 
reshaping this federal holiday, this national holiday, uh, to to call it Indigenous Peoples Day to celebrate Native lives. And uh, oh, and by the way, on a side note, it is also October fourth is Saint Francis's celebration of uh, the church around the world remembers Saint Francis of Assisi. Uh, <laughs> it's a, a lot different. To, to celebrate than Christopher Columbus. But you sort of, part of when I remember, you know, October 4th is St. Francis's um, day of celebration in the Christian church. And October 9th is when many people celebrate Christopher Columbus. But it, it's sort of this reminder that in the church, those of us who dare to call ourselves Christians, we have different heroes. Our heroes are not the colonizers, the uh, um, those who fought in the wars. It's, uh, our story is not about kings and presidents and chiefs of staff. Our story is about a prophetic tradition. It's about a God who's near to the margins, a God who's um, advocating and in solidarity with those who have suffered the worst, um, suffered the under, uh, the other side of the powers that be. And um, so in our book, uh, Common Prayer. We we compiled a curated a powerful book, uh, Common Prayer, that many of you may have seen. You can see it on on the internet, CommonPrayer.net. We do morning prayer on the first of each month. Uh, my friend Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove and I. But in, in, as we kind of thought about Columbus Day in Common Prayer, this is how we wrote our liturgy and our our uh, prayers for that day. It says this in 1492. The indigenous peoples of the Americas discovered Christopher Columbus. <laughs> and uh, we are reminded, you know, as my friend Mark Charles, a wonderful uh, Native American theologian and leader here in the U.S., he says, you cannot discover land that is already occupied. You can't discover other people's land Um and he says, if you don't believe that, when he's speaking, sometimes he says, just put your cell phone in front of you and I will discover it. Uh, because, you, you know, this idea that we discovered America, land that other people already lived in, is part of the mythology of America. And as I began this section on Christopher Columbus, and last week I talked about Abraham Lincoln, who, um, if there is such thing as an American saint, um it would be Abraham Lincoln, the, the, this person that we we venerated and celebrated, and yet has certainly had a massive shadow side. And we we've kind of often forgot uh, the true part of Abraham Lincoln. And I talked about that last week, but just you know, one um, one of his very famous lines, as you read more about Abraham Lincoln is uh, in the Douglas uh, the, the the debates um, that have. Uh, become known as um, the Douglas debates, Abraham Lincoln said this, he said, um, this is a quote, um, and, and when he was debating with Stephen Douglas in 1858, uh, he said, I am not, Abraham Lincoln said this, I am not nor have, have ever been in favor of making voters or jurors of Negroes, nor of qualifying them to hold office, nor to intermarry with white people. There is a physical difference between the white and black races, which I believe will for 
ever forbid the two races living together on terms of social and political equality. There must be the position of superior and inferior. And I, as much as any other man, am in favor of having the superior position assigned to the white race. There are folks that are probably going to say, you know, Abraham Lincoln was a product of, of his time. But the fact is that it was a time of white supremacy and that, you know, white lives mattered more than other lives. And and this went, you know, hundreds of years before even America, of course. And that's, uh, you know, the history that I'm tracking here. But, you know, Christopher Columbus came into that. And, you know, even as we remember the founding documents of America, the Declaration of Independence says all men are creative equal, but then just a few paragraphs later, it refers to indigenous people as merciless Indian savages. That's the language used for the the indigenous people of the Americas, Uh, merciless Indian savages. It's actually written into the Declaration of Independence, and we're reminded that even um, as we wrote, all men are created equal in those founding documents, um, black folks were counted as only three-fifths human, and women are not mentioned in the Constitution at all. Uh, all 51 gender-specific pronouns in the Constitution are male, so this was about you know male, white, landowning um, uh, people holding the power. And as we think about what happened as Christopher Columbus came to America. We've created a mythology around it, right? Um, and this is one of the places where I love uh, the words of Eddie Glaude. He's a great scholar and commentator. And he says, uh, America is not unique in its sins as a country. We're not unique in our sins. We're not unique in our evils. But Eddie says this, I think where we may be singular is our refusal to acknowledge them. And the legends and the myths that we tell about our inherent goodness to hide and cover and conceal so that we can maintain a kind of willful ignorance that protects our innocence. Ooh. Mm. So Eddie Glaude said that as he's saying we're not, you know, there are many countries that um, held people as property that participated in the the slave trade of folks that uh, colonized and and massacred indigenous people. But America is unique in our refusal to acknowledge those sins and the mythology that we've created, created this doctrine of discovery, this manifest destiny, this even theology that um, uh, justifies and um, protects our innocence as we look at this history more closely. So that's why we're talking about it, y'all, because uh, we believe that the truth sets us free. We believe in repentance, right? Which which means that we have to tell the truth about our sins as scriptures says, confess our sins to another. We've got to do that as a country, as countries, as um, uh, because if if we can't tell the truth about our past, we can't build a better future. We've got to reckon with those uh, national secrets. And, you know, in, in, in 1492, as, as uh, the native population in America is estimated uh, 
there's there's ranges, right? Because this is a long time ago. And those ranges go between like 1.2 million and 20 million. Most scholars say it was around 10 million. Uh, so we'll, we'll say it was around 10 million folks that were indigenous to this country. And if you take away or the, the North America, so if you take away um, the three or four million that are believed to have lived in Canada and Alaska, um, the native population in what's now known as the United States may have been about six million people. But check this out. It's estimated that between 1492 and 1900, the indigenous people's population plummeted to a quarter of a million, 237,000. So scholars look at this and say that's a 96% rate of genocide. I mean, going from millions and millions of people to less than a quarter of a million people. It's estimated that in one century, 1800 to 1900, the native population went from 600,000 to 237,000. And if we, you know, as you look closely at this, it's just absolutely heart-wrenching the torture the murder the 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 desecration of human life of native americans and it's important that we recognize you know this part of columbus what the role that columbus played in this and uh, i have a whole section of this new book rethinking life that's on the colonizing of native land so um but you know i i pull on the work of my friends and other scholars my my friend mark charles that i mentioned and uh, dr sung shan ra they wrote a great book uh called unsettling truths and um as you look at that book, they, there's so much to unpack in it. But um, there's this this kind of little story that I want to tell you. And, and uh, they put it like this, is Mark Charles and Sung Shan Ra. It feels like our indigenous peoples are an old grandmother who lives in a very large house. It's a beautiful place with plenty of rooms and comfortable furniture. But years ago, some people came into her house and locked her upstairs in the bedroom. And today, her home is full of people. They're sitting on the grandma's furniture. They're eating her food. They're having a party in her house. They have since come upstairs and unlocked the door to her bedroom. But now, it is much later, and she is tired, old, weak, and sick, and so she can't or doesn't want to come out. And the most hurtful part is that virtually no one from the party ever goes upstairs to visit the grandmother in the bedroom. No one sits down next to her or takes her hand and simply says, thank you. Thank you for letting us be in your house. Ooh. So I know this is, this, is a heavy, this is a heavy thing to reckon with, but history is heavy. And... um our nation, as Dr. King says, was born in genocide. The United States embraced the doctrine that the original American, the, the Native American, was an inferior race. That's what Dr. King says, one of the original myths and sins of America. So uh, as we think about um the story of America is gold was discovered in California. Folks flooded the state. You know, more than uh, it was hundreds of thousands of people, 300,000 people is estimated flooded to California. And California's native population 
plummeted. They were annihilated. They went. It went from what is believed around 150,000 people, native people in California in 1848 to just in three decades, fewer than 30,000 people. There were laws that incentivized the torture and murder of Native Americans. In 1851, in Shasta City, um, officials offered a bounty of $5 for each Native American head that was turned in. $5. Uh, There is a documentation that a million Californian dollars, a million dollars in the state fund created uh, was went towards paying militias who captured and killed Native Americans, and that that fund was used to incentivize um, at twenty five cents a scalp or five dollars for the full severed head. I mean, this is evil, right? I mean, we we look back and we all know that it's evil, and yet so much of this has been um, buried. And even now, they're fighting to tell to hide history. Uh, There are people in our country that don't want this truth to be told. And they, you know, use all kinds of words like critical race theory and all, you know, all this to to just say, we don't want to, we don't want to make white people feel guilty or there's nothing we can do about the past. And yet we know that telling the truth is so important that 4,000 Native American children were sold into slavery in the late 1800s. And the value that was put on their bodies was $60 for a boy, $200 for a girl. We put value and we only, and $60 on a human life. And we put $5 on the head of any Native American that people could bring to the state. Mm. We, We think of some of the 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 battles of you know wounded knee that I, I you know I can remember learning about in history class and yet you think three hundred folks at least were women children men were slaughtered and there were eighteen medals of honor that the United States gave out to soldiers who were responsible for that massacre so we we've got to tell a different story right those of us who are followers of the Prince of Peace we should be uh, the the biggest champions of life. We should be outraged as we look at this history, the displacement of Native Americans that happened, uh, as we know, the Trail of Tears, or if it's, you know, correctly translated, it's the trail where they cried as hundreds of thousands of folks were um, forcefully removed from their land, and one in four of them is estimated to have died and this is what I want to say too. When we, when we, you know, as as in the movement for Black Lives, when folks say Black Lives Matter, what is at the heart of that is the 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 insistence that we need to be particular at naming the value, especially of those populations of people who were targeted by injustice historically, right? That. History was not colorblind. Injustice was not colorblind. So the work of justice means that we see color, that we see even now um, the systemic racism that affects everything from policing to housing to uh, getting a loan. I mean, there's a you know that Freakonomic study that where the exact resume was given out to employers, and the only thing different on the resume was the name. 
one name was a white sounding name and the other was a person of color. And over and over, the employers with the exact uh, applications hire the person with the white sounding name. Jason gets the the job over and over, over Jamal. Um, You you know, uh, Stacy gets the job uh, over the the other name, I think it was Shaniqua in one of the studies, right? One of the studies had like Matt and Mohammed. And so it's still in us, right? There's that that racial bias that's in our uh society. And you can't think that and you you, you have to believe that over four hundred years of racism still has a residue, still leaves a mark. So just as sin is personal. It's also in our systems, which are created by humans, right? Our policing system, our criminal justice system, um, they're imperfect systems and racial bias still plays a role. And this is where I believe, you know, to be a part of the movement of God in the world is to seek God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. We want not just to use our faith as a ticket into heaven, but we want our faith to fuel our passion for transforming this world from what it is into what God wants it to be. So I believe the church, the body of Jesus followers across our country and around the world has a central role to play in repairing the cracks uh, in our foundation and value for life. We are to heal the wounds of violence, just as Jesus did. We're to heal the wounds of sin. And that process includes confession and truth-telling and repentance and repair. There's a great story in in the book. I kind of mentioned it. Um, In 1970, there was a man, Reverend Calvin B. Marshall III. He was the chairman of uh, the National Black Economic Development Conference, um, historic figure in the United States. And he was asked why he believed the church needed to be singled out as having a responsibility when it comes to healing the historic wounds of racism. And his response is brilliant. He said this, well, you know, why does, why does the church have a unique role to play? And he says, because the church is the only institution claiming to be in the business of salvation, resurrection, and the giving and restoring of life. General Motors has never made that kind of claim. (laughs) Come on, Reverend Marshall. (laughs) The church is, you know, is it God's instrument for bringing salvation and healing, resurrection, restoration. General Motors has never made that claim. So, um, you know, as we look at history, you see these parallel tracks that Christians have often been on the wrong side of life. But at the same time, Christians have been a force for life and dignity and liberation and freedom. You think of uh, so many of the communities uh, that were, you know, the obviously the historic black church, the Mennonites and Anabaptists that banned slavery as early as 1663. Um, there were, you know, in, there were Christians that were at the heart of hundreds and hundreds of anti-slavery associations uh, all over the country. Um, and they were part of the Underground Railroad. You know, some of our great heroes were Christians fueled by their faith, fighting for liberation. Um, Christians have also been a part of the problem. 
Uh, in the words of abolitionist Albert Barnes, there is no power out of the church that could sustain slavery an hour if it were not sustained in the church. And he, um, the, the, the church became uh, what's often called kind of the moral cement for racism. We began to create a theology and that in this mythology of the doctrine of discovery that justified the enslavement of people and the massacring of the natives. And and so there and there's churches that profited immensely from the taking of other, you know, native land and from the enslavement of people. One of the stories I tell in Rethinking Life is about um a church that a church that uh, Briary Presbyterian Church in Virginia that bought five enslaved people, the church, right? And over about 80 years, that number increased to 35 enslaved people that, you know, as as the, the children were born um, and these, the church hired out a nine-year-old child for $4 for a year. They auctioned off a 10-year-old child for $2.50. My heart just gets sick as I think of that, right? So that, that's why, you know, my friends Duke Kwan and Gregory Thompson, they wrote this great book, Reparations. And in that book, they say reparations is what all this violence has. It's about healing the violence that has been done past and present. And they suggest uh, that until we acknowledge the sins of the American church and Christians, there can be no real healing and restitution that we we as white folks that we will continue to be cursed with insecurity fear and shame because that past is in us denying the past not only hurts those who were wronged in the past but it also hurts those of us in the present whose ancestors and spiritual forebears participated in the wrongdoing. So as long as we refuse to acknowledge our wrong, we will be haunted by that fear and insecurity. But how do we get free? By telling the truth, y'all. By the blood of Jesus. Help us, Lord. And and telling the truth about Christopher Columbus is part of that. To tell the truth that um, it was the church that baptized the, the things that Christopher Columbus did. And I'm going to write about those. I'm going to post about those uh, uh, during this next week as our country remembers Columbus Day and as many of others of us remember Indigenous Peoples Day. So we're out of time this week, but I'm so grateful for y'all uh, tuning in. Please spread the word. We're going to keep talking about life and rethinking life, what it means to be pro-life from womb to tomb. And for now, it means celebrating indigenous people, celebrating every single human being as made in the image of God. Love y'all. Look in the mirror and say, thank you for making me in your image, sweet Lord. Hallelujah. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Red Letter Christians podcast. Too often, Christians have used our faith as a ticket into heaven and a license to ignore the world we live in. But at Red Letter Christians, we believe our faith is not just about going to heaven when we die, but also about bringing heaven to earth while we live. For more information on Red Letter Christians and upcoming events, additional resources, you can go to the show notes or our website, redletterchristians.org. You can also support Red Letter Christians by giving a one-time donation or becoming a monthly sustainer. Just go to our website and click the red donate button. Thank you for being a part of this conversation and for being a part of this movement.